Welcome to The Unseen, a podcast about narrative and radical politics. I'm Max. And I'm Dan. So we're going to start this episode just talking a few minutes about what this podcast is and what our intentions are and why we started it. Yeah, who introduced this project to me a few weeks ago. We didn't know each other before a mutual friend made the introduction. So I wanted to ask you, when did this idea form for you to start a podcast about the intersections of narrative and radical politics? What's been going on in your life politically, existentially, whatever? Yeah. So the first thing I'll say is this is a coronavirus podcast. We're both quarantined. Um, I suddenly, it's an idea that I had kicking around in my head for a while, but obviously this is a time where I was like, oh yeah, this is the time to do it. And I think that it came for me out of loving books my whole life, loving stories, and really being affected in them. And I think like being someone who is interested in, I'm like very interested in the question of like, how do we do politics? If we want to change the world, how do we do it? It seems like everything that we do, or this is my experience maybe, is that like it's hard to access feeling politically relevant. I certainly don't in my daily life feel like right now is a moment of huge engagement for me. And I don't think that the podcast is a way to do this, but I think it is a way to think about ways that we learn from stories about what is political, about specific histories of colonization, of struggle, of resistance, and ways that people tell stories in a way that are really intentional to try to affect the world. And the title of this podcast is coming from the book that I think really brought me to thinking about that in a conscious way, or at least as, as a project. The Unseen by Nani Balestrini is just an amazing story about youth rebellion and the youth movement in 1970s Italy. And so I was I started kind of making these mental lists that are like books that scratch that itch for me, like books of the left books that imagine a different world or that tell stories of resistance and I wanting to talk about them and for a while and like really get into the weeds about them. And I was like, you know, I think, I think a podcast is the best format for that. So I've been wanting to find someone who would do that with me for a while and a friend put Dan and I together. So we've been talking about this for the last several weeks. So Dan, you know, what made you say yes to this? What what made you feel interested in this project? Good question. Pretty much reflecting everything you said back. It's coronavirus time. I'm not working so hard, which is a general theme in my life. Tend to reject productivity or discipline. Collaborative project that I really value. So when our friend put us in touch at first, I was thinking like, I don't, I don't know about a podcast. I like listening to them, but I'm not a podcast guy or whatever. It's, um, I'd rather talk to my friends at length about the books that I read. But then when we started talking and you kind of sent me the book list of things that you were thinking, I did get really excited and I love how you put this intersection of narrative and, and politics for me also 
lifelong like reader. I love books. I love literature, but I especially dive deep into fantasy and science fiction. So I do have a genre preference, but it, I also read deeply about history, political economy, political ecology. So these nonfiction books help me understand the world. And two, I think as I've grown older, I felt like I need to use narrative and these different imaginaries and different kind of subjective orientations towards the world to help me situate myself politically. Everything you said about how are we as individuals engaged politically, it's not always easy to know. And you said we were going to bring Spinoza into this. Like thinking about yourself as a political subject, as Spinoza points out, all things and all actions are perfect extensions of God, of the universe. But only through reason and effort can we act in syncope with that perfect nature of God. So there's this strange tension. We are already political subjects. Everything we do produces politics, but we also have to make choices and commitments to enact the politics we believe. And that's not an easy path. And I think for both of us, like narrative and texts are one way we walk that path. That's what drew me to this project. So thanks. Thanks, Max. That's amazing. I think that's so well said. And I think that like the opposite of that is true also. I think that stories are also how we are taught that we're just individual people and that all of our actions are have to do with our own psychology, especially the novel, right? And I think that we're both really interested in looking at stories and looking at ways of writing that upset that a little bit, that can allow us to conceptualize ourselves in the Spinoza sense as, as part of everything else, you know, or part of another body of something bigger. Oh yeah. Fuck the novel. <laughs> so <laughs> we had each prepared a short text or reading that served as a, as like living example of, of this. So Max, what did you choose? What are you going to read for me, for us? So I immediately, when you asked this question, I immediately knew what I wanted to read from, which is absolutely one of my favorite books, Invisible Cities by Italo Calvino. I swear that not everything that we read or talk about will be from the 1970s in Italy, but this is one of them. And I also will start what I hope is a trend in our podcast, which is reading from the very last pages of a book. No, you can't. Um, <laughs> yeah. See, but I made a very like affirmative face at that because I too will be reading I will be reading from the last page of a text that I chose excellent so this is a series of descriptions of imaginary cities on the part of uh, Marco Polo and some kind of narrative on that so I'll be reading the last one and then the last framing device um, so this is from Invisible Cities, and it's Hidden Cities 5. 
I should not tell you of Berenice, the unjust city, which crowns with triglyphs, abacai, metopes the gears of its meat-grinding machines. The men assigned to polishing, when they raise their chins over the balustrades and contemplate the atria, stairways, porticos, feel even more imprisoned and short of stature. Instead, I should tell you of the hidden Berenice, the city of the just, handling makeshift materials in the shadowy rooms behind the shops and beneath the stairs, linking a network of wires and pipes and pulleys and pistons and counterweights that infiltrates like a climbing plant among the great cogged wheels, when the jam, a subdued ticking, gives warning that a new precision mechanism is governing the city. Instead of describing to you the perfumed pools of the baths where the unjust of Berenice recline and weave their intrigues with rotund eloquence and observe with a proprietary eye the rotund flesh of the bathing odalisks, I should say to you how the just, always cautious to evade the spying sycophants and the Janissaries' mass arrests, recognize one another by the way of speaking, especially their pronunciation of commas and parentheses, from their habits which remain austere and innocent, avoiding complicated and nervous moods, from their sober but tasty cuisine, which evokes an ancient golden age, rice and celery soup, boiled beans, fried squash flowers. From these data, it is possible to deduce an image of the future Berenice, which will bring you closer to knowing the truth than any other information about the city as it is seen today. You must nevertheless bear in mind what I'm about to say to you. In the seed of the city of the just, a malignant seed is hidden. In its turn, the certainty and pride of being in the right, and of being more just than many others who call themselves more just than the just. This seed ferments in bitterness, rivalry, resentment, and the natural desire of revenge on the unjust is colored by a yearning to be in their place and to act as they do. Another unjust city, though different from the first, is digging out its space within the double sheath of the unjust and just Berenices. Having said this, I do not wish your eyes to catch a distorted image, so I must draw your attention to an intrinsic quality of this unjust city germinating secretly inside the secret just city. And this is the possible awakening, as if in an excited opening of windows, of a later love for justice, not yet subjected to rules, capable of reassembling a city still more just than it was before it became the vessel of injustice. But if you peer deeper into this new germ of justice, you can discern a tiny spot that is spreading like the mounting tendency to impose what is just through what is unjust, and perhaps this is the germ of an immense metropolis. From my words, you will have reached the conclusion that the real Berenice is a temporal succession of different cities, alternately just and unjust. But what I wanted to warn you about is something else. All the future Berenices are already present in this instant, wrapped one one within the other, confined, crammed, inextricable. Then there's a little more dialogue between the great Khan and Marco Polo. And the book ends this way. And Polo said, The inferno of the living is not something that will be. If there is one, it is what is already here, the inferno where we live every day, 
that we form by being together. There are two ways to escape suffering it. The first is easy for many. Accept the inferno and become such a part of it that you can no longer see it. The second is risky and demands constant vigilance and apprehension. Seek and learn to recognize who and what, in the midst of the inferno, are not inferno. Then make them endure. Give them space. Oh my god. Yeah. Oh my god. Um, there's your Spinoza. Yeah, it's it's very it's I was rereading this and I read this book a long time ago and I was like, wow, Spinoza for sure. Um I mean I'm speechless. I've never read Invisible Cities. What what draws you in? Well, you know, it's interesting because Calvino really does play with genre and fantasy a lot. And I think that this will be a discussion when we look at more science fiction work. And when we think about that politically, we can imagine the horizons of the world or imagine different configurations. And that's what this book is about, is just imagining cities, you know, imagining the city that are fantastic and have different things that limit them. And in each one is a short vignette. It's a beautiful book. And this particular passage, I think, is so, it really is important for me because there's a sense of everything existing at the same time. And there's a sense of, I mean, I don't know if I could say it better, but it's its the sense that we do have a choice about how to live, uh, but the choice is not about what to be or what's right in every situation. It's about, you know, one framing that I think I found really useful recently. It's about finding joy and the joy of becoming, of finding power and finding power with others. And I think that for me politically, that's, that's a really important framing. And I think uh, Calvino puts it beautifully there. One thing that struck me is the unfolding of this city, the description of it from a physical description to an observation on political principles and then the unfolding, the way it plays out in, in the world. And I think those, they're beautiful. They work and they inspire. Thanks for sharing. Of course, I'm always so happy to read from this book. Um, but I'm very excited to hear what, what so did you bring to I read? I picked a passage. The last passage is from The Foundation Pit by Andre Platinoff. This book was written in 1930, 1932. It is about Stalin's forced collectivization of the countryside. Um, I read it several years ago, and admittedly, I cannot remember any detail about it. I was looking for something to read and like the memories just stirred. I was like, oh, this book has something that I want to express. So a short note before I start, there's several names and characters. Um, their identities are not important except for that of Nastya, 
who is an orphan child who is dead at the beginning of this scene. All the characters exist in a work camp in the countryside and have been digging the eponymous foundation pit. Vaschev had gone outside to the horses and he did not hear Zachev to the end. He had brought Nastya a present, a sack of hand-picked items of scrap in the form of rare toys that are not for sale anywhere, each of them an eternal memory about a forgotten human being. Nastya was looking at Vaschev, but she did not rejoice in any way, and Vaschev reached out to touch her, seeing her open, silenced mouth and her indifferent, tired body. Vaschev stood in bewilderment over this stilled child. He no longer knew. Where in the world was communism now going to be if it didn't first begin in a child's feeling and convinced impression? What need had he now of life's meaning and the truth of the universal origin if there were not a small, loyal human being in whom truth would become joy and movement? Vaschev would have agreed to go back to knowing nothing and to living without desire and a troubled longing of vain mind if only the little girl could be intact, ready for life, even if she were to suffer torment with the flow of time. Vaschev picked Nastya up in his arms, kissed her on lips that had fallen apart, and, with greed of happiness, held her close, finding more than he was looking for. Why have you brought the collective farm? I'm asking you for the second time, appealed Zachev, letting go of neither the cream nor the pastries. The peasants want to register in the proletariat, replied Vaschev. There as nothing, so I've brought them along for utility scrap. Let them register, pronounced Chicklin from the earth. Now the foundation pit must be dug broader and deeper still. Let every man from a barrack and a clay hut find room in our house. Call all the authorities here along with Puchevsky. I'm off to dig. Chicklin took a crowbar and a new spade and walked slowly away to the far border of the foundation pit. There he again began to gape motionless earth wide open since he was unable to cry and he went on digging lacking the strength to exhaust himself until nightfall and all through the night until he heard the cracking of bones in his laboring torso then he stopped and glanced around the collective farm was following him and without stopping was digging the earth all the poor and middle peasants were working with such zeal as life as if they were seeking to save themselves forever in the abyss of the foundation pit nor were the horses standing idle. The collective farm peasants were riding to and fro on them, clasping crushed stone in their arms while the bear dragged the same stone on foot, his maw yawning wide from the strain. Zachev alone was taking part in nothing and watching all the digging labor with a gaze of great sorrow. What are you doing, sitting there like some desk worker? Chicklin asked him on returning to the barrack. At le the least you could do is sharpen some spades. I can't, Nikita. I don't any longer believe in communism, replied Zachev on this morning of the second day. Why, you bastard? I'm a freak of imperialism, you can see that. But communism's something for the children. That's why I love Nastya. Now I'll go and kill Comrade Pashkin goodbye. And Zachev crawled into the city, never more returning to the foundation pit. At noon, Chiklin began to dig Nastya a special grave. He dug it for 15 hours on end in order that it should be deep and that neither a worm nor the root of a plant nor warmth nor cold should be able to penetrate it, and so that the child would never be troubled by the noise of life from the earth's surface. 
Chicklin gouged out a sepulchral bed in eternal stone, and by way of a lid, he prepared a special granite slab so that the vast weight of the grave's dust should not press down on the little girl. After he had rested, Chicklin took Nastya in his arms and carried her without, with care to lay her in the stone and fill in the grave. The time was night, the whole collective farm was asleep in the barrack, and only the hammerer, sensing movement, awoke, and Chicklin allowed him to reach out and touch Nastya farewell. And thus ends The Foundation Pit by Andrei Platonov. Wow. Where then is Where communism? Then is communism? Um, something I love about this, without any context, I think it explores how people suffer and hope with these ideological terms and concepts. The sorrow of having to bury an orphan child, all these men, like laboring men surrounding this child. She means something to each of them in a different way. They each show this dead child tenderness. Meanwhile, they're watching this parade of peasants who are, you know, rendered as non-individuals carry on this ideological work. I don't know. It cuts pretty raw. It's very bleak. And I also think that ideology is something that is an important political tool and to like exist beyond it without it is to lack a critical tool of engagement. So that's, that's what I see in this passage. It's amazing. Hey, I really want to read that book. I think we should read it for the podcast. Great. Excellent. Well, thank you. I think that kind of gets into some of the what we're thinking about and what we're bringing here. I'm sure that more will just come up as we talk and that this will continue to evolve. But Dan, thank you so much for wanting to do this. Max, thank you. Thank you everyone for listening. Have a wonderful night. Music graciously provided by X Official. Check them out at xofficialexo.bandcamp.com or on SoundCloud as x-official. For our next episode, we'll be reading *The Unseen* by Nani Balastrini. Thanks for listening.